0: The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracetysd.com.
1: In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women! He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for such humble um, beginnings, Lord. Lord, that you came to us uh, as a child. Lord, I just pray um, this whole season, Lord, that we can um, that we can worship you, uh, and I just pray for for Grace City and that we can um, just spread the news of your birth and of, of how uh, of what that means. To the city. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: All right, well, again, good morning. Uh, Glad you're here. Uh, We are currently in a series called Jesus, our King. And the text that was just read is Luke 1 39 through 55. So, again, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. That's what we're going to be studying today. Uh, But our message is this the, the longing for a king. The longing for a king. Now, we're in this season called Advent, and uh, Advent is just a, a, a fancy word, but a Latin word for coming. Coming. Um, there is an anticipation that we have for the coming of Jesus as Christians. We, we anticipate his arrival. And why is that? It's because we believe that Jesus is is uh, not just a, a, another person, but he is God. He's God. And he's not just God, but he's, he's king. See, there's this word, the, the incarnation. And, and if we think about it for a minute, the incarnation is, is God becoming man, but, but so close, intimately, that he became a baby. Now, what we learn from that is this, that the, the God of the Bible is not a distant, far-off God created the the cosmos and then said, okay, I'm not going to be involved, but he's one who comes near. He's one who desires relationship, intimacy. So much so that he became so vulnerable to become a baby. I mean, can you think of anything more vulnerable than a baby? At the end of service today, we're gonna to be doing child dedications. You're gonna see these little babies up front being dedicated to the Lord. And so you think about it, Jesus became a baby. And what he did was he became so vulnerable to the point that he would even die. He would die. See, I want us to think about that for a minute because it, it should be shocking to us that God would become that Vulnerable. Jai Packer, a theologian, once said, he says, the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. God becoming man. Man. John 1.14 says it like this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When he talks about this word dwelt, it's, it's almost as if, he, as if he said, okay, I'm gonna pitch my tents and hang out with you. Right? Like if we're gonna go camping, he's like, I'm gonna hang out here with you and I'm gonna hang out among you. It says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. People wonder, they say, well, what is God like? God came so near to us, and He's full of grace and truth. And so, when I talk about Jesus as King, God becoming man, what's your response? In his celebrated book series, the, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes in The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe about four kids, brothers and sisters, who find this world, Narnia. They walk into the wardrobe. It's this, it's this place, it's enchanted, it's, animals can talk, and it's in this eternal winter. And as they start to interact with some of the animals that are there, they, they meet a beaver, Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver, who want to talk with them and, and share with them about Narnia, about this place. And they start to talk about Aslan. And they tell them, they say, you know, Aslan is the true king, Aslan's the king of Narnia we haven't seen him for a while. But there's this rumor going around, and here's what they say. They say that Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And then something happened in the kids' hearts. As they heard that name, Aslan, said none of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do, but the moment the beaver had spoken these words, it says that everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, one of the children, um, Edmund, it says that felt a sensation of mysterious horror. The brother Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if she smelled like a delicious smell or delightful strain of music started to float through the air. Lucy got this feeling of when you wake up and. It's either the holidays or the beginning of summer. It's excitement. See, all of the kids, as they started to hear about Aslan, they started to respond differently. And they start to ask a little bit more about him. They say, Are, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course, he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, as the mystery, this longing, there's something deep within these kids that they say, man, I I don't know it, but I need a king. I need something more. They responded. And whether we know it or not today, all of us have a response to Jesus and his kingship. And as we dig deeper today in this text, we're gonna see that, um, as we see that he is a loving and gracious king, Mary response something just just floats out of her and in, in, in into the world and we get to read it today and what we find is she starts talking about Jesus we find out that he's the king that your heart and my heart longs for and you do might not even know that today but I hope as we study this text, you'll, you'll see it. And so the text is Luke 1, 39 through 55. And just to, to give a setting of what's happening here, last week we started out with uh, this idea that this young girl, Mary, teenage years, is told by Gabriel and Angel that she is going to be the mother, the son of God. Potentially, she could have been anywhere from 15, younger, or a little bit older, but right in that age range. And it just shakes up her world. Because at that point, she is betrothed to be married to a man named Joseph. And she's going to be a mom. And so rumors are going to start about her because she's not fully married yet about why she's pregnant. It's gonna change her life forever. And so what she does next is she goes to a family member, a trusted family member. She goes to her cousin, Elizabeth, who's also pregnant with a son. And what we find in verses 39 through 45, as we read it a little bit earlier, is that Elizabeth gives Mary this stunning clarity about the important job that she has. And she, what she tells her is this, that you're not dreaming, that you are the mother of the Son of God. And so you have this huge responsibility. And so throughout this visit, Elizabeth is affirming Mary. Mary. And I just want to say this as an aside. You know, some of us say we've got these great dreams. God told me this or God told me that. But we don't have people from the outside really give feedback on that. And so we just say, well, this is what God told me. I'm just going to go out and do this. That's not what Mary does here. But she goes to someone trusted, someone she knows knows God. And this person comes in and says, hey, it's true. She affirms it in her life. And so from this affirmation, Mary begins to sing. And she sings what's called by scholars the Magnificat. Stanley Jones calls the Magnificat the most revolutionary document in the world. What it is, is it's an outburst of praise in Old Testament language, see, When we hear something from God, it's not meant just to be information into our lives. It's meant to be a response of praise out of our hearts. That's what it is. And so she wasn't just gathering information, saying, wow, how great. But she starts actively praising God, saying, God, thank you for allowing me to be a part of what you're doing in the world. See, and in this song, we catch a glimpse of Mary meditating upon the reality of God's grace, God's plan, God's mission. And it moves her deeply. This song that she's singing is not about her. It's about God. And as we break down this text, she realizes that Jesus' coming is the answer, not just to her problems, but humanity's deepest longings. It's the king. The king is coming. It answers our struggles in three ways. And so we're gonna break this text down today and all three, I'm gonna give you up front. But Jesus's arrival is meant to radically impact us, number one, personally, number two, socially, and number three, eternally. Personally, socially, eternally. And so the first one is this, personally. Look at verses 46 through 50. Here's what it says. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now this word uh, for, for magnify is, is like it's a continual lifting up of God. She, it's unceasing praise to God. She's like my soul, the deepest part of me, magnifies God. That's why it's called the Magnificat. So the magnificence of God. Verse 47. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he's looked upon uh, on the humble estate of his servant for behold from now on all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and the and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation okay so as we look at this what do we see throughout as as mary is Pondering and thinking upon God. It's this that she is receiving it personally. She's receiving it in many ways personally. And so you say, Well, how? How is that happening? Look at look at verse 47. She says this my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary understands her need for God's grace. Some believe or even teach that Mary was sinless. But that's not what we see in Scripture. She was a sinful person just like any of us. And so as Mary looked upon her life, she says, My spirit rejoices. I'm responding because God is my Savior. She needed a savior. About this text, uh, commentator Leon Morris says, God, my savior, shows that Mary recognized her need. She was a sinner like other people. Right? So we look at the, the life of Mary, who she was. She was a normal person. She was a kid. Yet she is responding in a way where she looks at God and says, God, I need you in my life. I can do nothing apart from you. I need a savior. So, personally, she receives that. Secondly, it's this look look at verse 48. She says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Some translations say, like this, she's saying that she's God's bondservant. So, as she looked at her life, she says, Okay, I am like under God's authority. This isn't about me being in charge of my life, but I'm under God and God is in charge. See, in this text, Mary personally sees her place in life. Again, commentator William Barclay says this, Christ enables a man to see himself. It is the death blow to pride. Right, as as she puts herself next to God, we put ourselves next to Christ who we know. We know this, that we can't say, hey, I'm, I'm perfect, I'm great, I've got it all together. Right, like we, we have issues. And so when she puts herself next to God, she says, God, I'm not in charge of my life, I need you. And she's receiving that personally. But here's the last part of this, verse 48. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Here's one thing that we don't usually focus on. That Mary had a very special calling on her life. Rightly, we downplay it so much and we say, well, Mary, she. She's a sinner just like any of us. But here's the thing. She knew that, but she also knew her place in the world, that God had lifted her up to this place that she didn't deserve. And she had this special plan on her life that it says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Here's the thing. Thousands of years later, we are reading about a teenager who responded to God. And so God took this girl who who no one would have known of other than she just lived during that time. And now we read about her thousands of years later. See, Mary believed that she had this special plan from God in her life. And so she's received God's radical grace and, and love towards her personally. And here's what she knows. This isn't a fairy tale to her. This is her life. I um, was talking with my wife last night and she said, you know, I just had this opportunity. We've, me and my wife have three kids. So I, I got to, to sit there with our middle child tonight, Elle, and talk with her a little bit. And right before bed, uh, she's having this conversation with Elle, who's five years old. And Elle looks at her and says, Mommy, why, why do you tell me that, that God made me? why do you say that God loves me? Why do you say that, that God has this plan for my life? And she, my wife, Laura, Laura, looked at her and she says, because it's true, because it's true, because God looks at you and he loves you and he cares about you and he cares about what you're going through and he does have a plan for your life. And then it was like this light bulb switched in her mind. She's, Laura said this huge smile came across her face. See, it wasn't just this general broad idea of just like God loves you. But it was in a moment, it became real and personal for my daughter. See, and as we see with the life of Mary, again, it's not just this general idea. But she is receiving this personally and saying, no, I need this. It's not a fairy tale. It's now my life. And so it radic- radically impacts her personally. Second, it radic- radically impacts us socially. This is where it gets revolutionary, guys. So, verses uh, 51 through 53, it says this He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. What is Mary saying in this text? Mary looks at her life and she knows that she's lowly. Here's the truth. She's poor. And now we see Jesus coming into the world and saying, okay, that's the way that the social order works. Like, okay, you don't really matter much. You're down here. But Mary is saying, okay, God, you lift up the poor. Verse 52 says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Here's the beautiful part. Is what we see is that God sees the broken, the hurting, the lonely, those who are struggling, Like he sees those things. And that God loves the forgotten, loves the broken. And he loves them to their hearts. You see what it says? It says this he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. When we think about pride, we don't really think much about the heart. We think about the outward exterior, right? Like, oh, man, that person is really prideful. They treated me in a really prideful way, and I didn't like it, and it rubbed me the wrong way. And so for a long time, I thought that pride was just an outward thing. But what God looks at is he looks all the way down to the heart. It's not just the outward things that we see, but it's the small little grumblings that are in here. See, God knows those things. And he says, that, that, that's not the way that I have intended life to be, but I wanna lift up the lowly, the, the, the ones who, who don't think that they're better than other people, the poor. Jesus is radically changing the social structure and, and how things work in the world. Those who are forgotten are now remembered. Do you see God's heart in this? Do you you see why Jesus' arrival is so important? Because when God looks at the world, he doesn't say, well, these are the important people and these are the unimportant people. But he says, no, if you bear my image, you are important. You matter. Timothy Keller says this. He says, when God came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ, he was born in the feed trough. When his parents took him to circumcision, their offering was 2 pigeons, the offering that was accepted for those on the lowest rung of the economic ladder. Jesus was essentially homeless. He said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He rode into town on a borrowed donkey. He ate his last meal in a borrowed room. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was poor. So if we were to look at how Jesus came into the world, he came into the world lowly and poor. See, our king was not born in a palace. He shook up everything socially and invited in the poorest of the poor. Essentially, God is saying to us this, you're uneducated, you don't have fathers or mothers that are upper class, you don't have connections, you don't have, uh, get prominent opportunities. He says, I can relate. I came for you. I came to change the way the world operates at its very core. Jesus shakes up the social structure of the world. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, the Christ whose gospel we preach is no unapproachable philosopher. The ignorant and the illiterate may find in him their best friend. You say, there's something keeping me away from Christ. It's this or that or whatever it may be. Jesus says, I break down all the barriers the social economic barriers and say, come to me and find rest. That's a different type of king. And then lastly, it's this. it, It impacts us eternally. So look at verses 54 through 55. It says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Right now, Mary is going all the way back to the promise of Abraham. And so some interesting things about that. When we, we think back to Abraham at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, we think of Abraham, he's lost, and then God comes and says, hey, I, I've got something amazing for you. I, I have an opportunity for you. I wanna start a new family. We're, we're all nation, all people are gonna be able to be a part of this. And so he looks at, Abraham, and he says, look up at the stars. As many stars are in the sky, there will be a family like this. And I'm gonna work that plan through you, Abraham. And so one of the things that along the way he does, he says, okay, Abraham, I need you to wait for a child. I need you to trust me on this. Instead of waiting, Abraham says, okay, I'm gonna go with my own plan. And that didn't work. And then he says, okay, I'm gonna give you a son, Isaac. He says, I want you to take Isaac. I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to walk him up the mountain. I want you to sacrifice him right there at the top. And Abraham was gonna do it. This was everything. Everything was on the line. And God looks at him and says, stop. And he gives him another sacrifice instead. And all of this, all of this was a picture of what was to come. And so we find that Jesus comes later through the story of Mary. And as Mary's thinking about this, she's thinking about Abraham. She's saying God is faithful to his promises. And Mary is singing in the past tense here because as she looks at the future, she's saying, okay, it's already as if Jesus is already born. It's already as if this is gonna happen. She's rejoicing, thinking about the promises that God's made. She says, okay, God is faithful to his promises. She realizes that Jesus is everything. And that it's going to impact not just her generation, but generations to come, you and me. This is deep stuff from a teenager. It's highly theological and it's this, that God has impacted her so deeply inside that she's responding and saying, God, you, it's all about you. And so what are some takeaways that, that we can learn from this? There's two questions as we respond to Jesus. The first one is this. Has Jesus' arrival impacted the way you view yourself? The way you view yourself? Because here's the thing as we think about Mary. She could have looked at herself and said, well, I'm, I'm just this poor girl. I've got nothing going for me. And she could have really just thought, okay, there's no way that God could ever use me. You see, in a lot of ways, we can relate. Because for some of us, we, we look at ourselves and we say, I just hate the way I look. I don't like myself. Some of us have this negative, like extreme negative self-talk that just rules our minds every day. Some of us believe that there's no way that Jesus could ever love me. But when we look at Mary, we we know this, that as she looked at herself, she had this this low view of like, okay, I'm, I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. But then she also had this very high view of herself, that God could use her, that God could work through her. And what bridges that gap? It's, it's the gospel. It's knowing that God doesn't love us based on our performance or based on what we've done or based on our past, but he loves us based on the son, the son that she was gonna have. And so in that moment, she, as she's believing that she's gonna have a son, Putting her faith in God being her Savior. See, it's putting the faith in the Son. And what happens is it transforms our life. See, if you're continually having these negative thoughts coming through your mind saying, There's no way that God could love me, I just want to say, Because of the gospel in Jesus' name, you can stop. You can stop believing the lie. You can stop believing that there's no way that God could ever use me in this world. See, when Mary looked at herself, she wasn't wrapped up in if she deserved it or not. That's what we get wrapped up in, isn't it? She she was wrapped up in God's grace and love for her. Because when we start thinking about the future, we start thinking about God's plan for our life, we start thinking, do I deserve this? I don't deserve it. I, I'm just this terrible person. But here's the thing. That's not what it's about. It never was about that. It was about God's grace. It's the point. We didn't deserve it. But God gave us this beautiful gift. What would it look like if, we, if our lives were wrapped up in God's grace rather than ourselves and what we thought about ourselves? The second point is this. Do you believe your obedience to Jesus impacts eternity? Impacts eternity. Verses 49 through 50, here's what it says. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. See, for Mary, it was gonna take an obedience that was gonna cost her something. But it was gonna impact generations to come. At first, it was her relationship with Joseph. She had to explain to Joseph at some point hey, here's why I'm pregnant. An angel came, visited, told me I'm going to be pregnant. Yeah, right. And so it's, it's like he, he comes and he has this moment where he's like, okay, I'm going to divorce her quietly and we're not just going to make a scene about this. But then that same angel came and told him, You're going to be the father the earthly father to the son of God. And he came out, oh, I'm sorry. You know, hey, let's work this thing out. And do you know this this probably followed Jesus the rest of his life? Those rumors, those things that people said about him, in John 8 41, it says this the Pharisees were talking to him, and, and they were telling him that he was the son of the, the devil, and he was doing bad things, Jesus. And, and they said this You were doing the works of, that your father did. And they said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. And so as they looked at Jesus, they said, We know your story. We, we know about you, we know those rumors. And Jesus walked around with that for his whole life. See, Mary, Mary's obedience to God cost her something, but it made an impact on us today. So my question is this, what are you willing to risk to make an eternal difference? Maybe it might be your reputation. Maybe it might be your resources. Maybe it might be your relationships. What is it? You see, there's this great joy for Mary as she thought about Jesus coming. But she didn't know it was around the corner either. And one commentator, William Barclay, said this. This is an interesting insight. He says, well might her heart be filled with a wondering, tremulous joy at so great a privilege. Yet that very blessedness was to be a sword to pierce her heart. It meant that someday she would see her son hanging on a cross. To be chosen by God so often means at one and the same time a crown of joy and a crown of sorrow. You see, as Jesus was going to the cross, it was Mary who was with him the whole way. And we find as Jesus' disciples scattered that she was at the foot of the cross seeing her son. Dying for you and me. See, this great blessedness was also a crown of sorrow for this woman, Mary, as she saw her son dying. See, here's the thing Jesus didn't just come to be born humbly, He came to live a life that you and I could have never lived. He came to die for our sins. And so as Jesus is on the cross, the whole purpose of why he was born was to die, was to hang there. Because he wanted to show us this. It says, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that by his poverty might become rich. Do you long for a king today? Do you say that the, the, the way that the, the social order works, the way that things are in this world, there's no answer. I need a king. I encourage you today to look no further than the one who was born in a manger, lived the perfect life, and died on a cross for our sins. He's the only one that can fulfill that longing that we have in our hearts for a true king. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for what you've done. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we will remember because of your grace, we are saved, not because of anything we've done. And so I thank you, God, for loving us the way you have. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.